Take your Bibles if you have them and turn with me this morning to Luke 17. We are still in Genesis, technically speaking. Last time we were together in Genesis 19, we considered the circumstances surrounding his unmarried daughters and his wife fleeing the city of Sodom prior to the Lord raining down upon it fire and brimstone. They entered into the city of Zoar, and then they watched as fire consumed the cities in the plains. And it was there that we read in Genesis 19, verse 26, but his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Lot's wife, the Bible says, looked back, a thing which the angels explicitly told them not to do, and in doing so, she was turned into a pillar of salt. And why salt? Uh, because this was one of the distinctives of the region and one of the distinctives of God's judgment. Uh, so she, in turning to, into a pillar of salt, was uh, certainly uh, destroyed in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, though she was not in Sodom and Gomorrah, but also she was subsumed into the same substance as the judged region for which she lamented and she desired. She looked back upon this region that is uh, sodium-rich, that is salt-rich, and as she longed for that region, she was actually subsumed into the character of the region. Though she had been pulled out of that region, as she longed for it, she was subsumed back into its character and thus subsumed into its judgment. And it was this woman's response uh, and subsequent judgment that we think about in our time together today, uh, but significantly more broadly. Uh, we, are, we are going to Luke 17 because of uh, this statement that we saw, remember Lot's wife, and it is our Savior who said those words. And as we read about Lot's wife, and as we read about those things, far be it from us to not go to our Savior's teachings and consider what he had to say about Lot's wife in his own day. So though we are still in our Genesis series, we find our way today to Luke 17, where we consider Jesus's teaching that compelled him to say those words, remember Lot's wife. So our focus today is going to center around Luke 17, where the account of Lot, and particularly of Lot's wife, comes directly into view. And that in relation to Jesus's teachings about the last days. To this end, we are uh, very context dependent. Context is important. And Jesus's teaching on that passage is very important. I am going to talk about some end times things today. And in doing so, I'm going to uh, take some things for granted. I'm not going to be able to, in one singular message, substantiate every claim that I'm going to make about what we believe about the end times. There's simply not enough time for that. I, I did... Uh, le leading up to my Revelation series, I think I did eight messages of introduction before I even started in Revelation chapter one, verse one, just to get us to the point where we understood why it is we believe what we believe as a church, our interpretive method, and the way that that interpretive method directs us to a certain manner of thinking as it relates to end times events. I don't have eight messages this morning um, to be able to uh, lay all that out for you. I don't have eight hours to lay that all out for you. But what I do have is recordings of those eight hours of teaching. So if you need a little bit more on this, it's the first eight messages in the Revelation series on YouTube, on Sermon Audio, and you can go back and listen to those messages and get a little bit more of a foundation as to why it is we believe what we believe uh, and where our interpretive method, what is our interpretive method, how does that lend itself to our interpretations of Scripture as it relates to the various elements of the last days. So context, as I said, is very important to Jesus' teaching in this passage of Luke 17. 
17. To that end, we're going to back up a little bit in that passage. I begin in uh, verse 20 of Luke 17, where the Bible says this, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So we begin our context with the Pharisees demanding that word speaking of an authoritative questioning. This is that same word when we talked about uh, women in the church and it says, I suffer not a woman to, to speak in the church. If she have a question, let her ask her husband at home. The idea there of question is the same word. It's not a word that simply says, do you have a question? It's an authoritative demand. And that is what Paul is saying women ought not do in the church. And that is what we, what we find here. The idea that the Pharisees were standing over him, demanding something of him, asking an authoritative question and, 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 and demanding an answer answer of him is what we see here. So they demand this answer. When the kingdom of God should come. Remember, Jesus came preaching. The kingdom of, uh, of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, it, within that message, says, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then here's the weird thing. Jesus comes with this message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand but then he doesn't come with a political message. He does not come raising armies and seeking national loyalties. Instead, he comes and he's focusing upon the idea of repentance. The kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent. Repent is the part he's focused on, not the kingdom of God. So they say, well, when is the kingdom of God coming? Jesus' message was one of obedience, one of repentance. And to this end, Jesus gives them the answer which underlies their demand. He gives them the answer which is in line with the thing that they are demanding of him. He says, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, the word here translated observation is used only here in our New Testament. We call that in our theological world a hapax legomenon. It's the only time within our Greek New Testament that we find this word used. But it is well translated if you go back to uh, classical Greek and such. It is well translated as observation, that which one can see with their eyes, that which one can experience with their senses. Neither, Jesus says, shall they say low here or low there, but rather, he says in contrast, in contrast to seeing it happen physically and somebody saying, the kingdom is over here. No, the kingdom is over there. In contrast to that, he says, the kingdom of God is within you. So Jesus tells the Pharisees that what he is doing, and, and, and put your thinking hats on this morning, because this is not a not thinking message. This is a thinking message today. Jesus says, he tells the Pharisees that what he is there doing is not about bringing a physical kingdom, but rather about calling men to enthrone God in their hearts. In other words, he says, the point of me being here today is not the kingdom of heaven is at hand per se, but repent. That's the focus for today. That's the first thing that you have, that, that, that is what you have to pass through. If you want to get to the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you have to pass through, repent. Submit to the word of God and through it be ruled by God in your heart. So he says to the Pharisees, the thing that I'm calling you unto is not observation, low here, low there. It's not the physical kingdom. It's the kingdom of God within you. It is for you to enthrone God in your heart. The words of the prophecies of old, to allow God to circumcise their hearts, to take away their stony hearts and to give them a heart of flesh. 
Jesus says, this is the priority for today, Pharisees. And in this way, Jesus made clear to these Pharisees that their obligation regarding his teaching and his pronouncements was to, in no uncertain terms, humble themselves before God, submit themselves to his words, and walk in faith and in obedience to him. Having then answered that question, okay, so Jesus was asked a question, when is the kingdom of God coming? Jesus answers their question. It's not with observation. It's not here. It's not there. The kingdom of God is within you. He answered that to the Pharisees. He answered their question within the context that they could receive it because of where they were in their, 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 their belief process or lack thereof. But then the Bible says he turns to his disciples and he says something very different to them. He turns to those who had already accepted that Jesus is the king. He turned to those who have already accepted the kingdom of God within them, as it were, who had repented, who had submitted themselves, who had humbled themselves before God, who had chosen already to exercise faith and enthrone God in their hearts. And toward them, Jesus has a very different message. Notice this, verse 22. And he said unto his disciples... The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the, sons of, of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here or see there. Go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteth out of one part of under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first, must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. Notice the strong contextual shift that happened here between verses 20 and 21, where Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, and then verses 22 to 25, where Jesus changes his perspective and he begins talking to his disciples. When Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees who had rejected the message of repentance, both out of the mouth of John the Baptist and out of his own mouth as Messiah, he remained single-minded and focused upon the message of repentance as related to the kingdom, that you must be born again, that God desires to enthrone himself upon your heart, that you must repent and submit to God's message, that you cannot have the kingdom unless you first enthrone him in your heart. That is the, 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 the singular and first message. He has nothing more to say to the Pharisees than that. But then when Jesus turns to his disciples... When Jesus turns to those who had already submitted themselves to that kingdom, to the message of the kingdom, they are in line. He has a very different message for them. Those who, once Jesus will depart and subsequently sends the comforter who he promised to send to indwell them and to enliven them, that's the spirit of God. Once they are there living in the power of the kingdom because the kingdom of God is in fact within them, to these men, Jesus says something very different. Jesus then speaks of a day yet future, of a day that has not come yet, of a day when Messiah would stand in a very dis different disposition to the day that he's standing on that day. Jesus says that the days would come when they would desire to see the days of the sons of, Son of Man, when they would desire to see Jesus and he would not be with them. Jesus is speaking here of his departure through death, and then the subsequent years of toil, of labor, of persecution, and of difficulty that would lie before them after his ascension into heaven. And in those days, there would be those who would seek to divert attention away from the faithful, 
away from the Christians, away, uh, away, uh, turn the Christians' eyes, excuse me, away from Christ's person and Christ's work, saying, look here or look there. And Jesus says, don't go after them in that day. Don't go after those false Christs in that day. Don't go after the false kingdom in that day. And in this, you notice both parallels and distinctions between what Jesus said to the Pharisees and what he said to his disciples. Notice the similarities between those two verses. Jesus said to the Pharisees that the kingdom of God does not come with observation. You can't say it's here. You can't say it's there because it's within you. And there's people that'll key in on that and say, see, the kingdom is not, there's no physical kingdom. There's no literal kingdom. Well, read past verse 21. Right, 20 and 21, yeah, because Jesus is speaking to unbelievers who cannot, re who, they, they have no business receiving anything else, just like Jesus spoke in the parables, specifically so that those who would not believe would not understand, and those who would believe would understand. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees what the Pharisees could receive, which is they need to receive the kingdom within them. But then to his disciples, he says something different. He speaks to those who have the kingdom of God within them by faith, and he says to them, that people will say to them in the days of Jesus' absence, he's here, he's there, the kingdom's here, the kingdom's there. Speaking of the Savior itself, speaking of his kingdom, and this reflects Jesus' warning in Matthew 24, verse 23. If any man shall say unto you, lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. So we see these parallel ideas, but very different contexts. And the reason we know this is because Jesus speaks to his disciples. And as he does so, he speaks of a yet future kingdom. Those who have already received the kingdom in their hearts immediately begin longing for the return of their king. Those of you who are born again, living in this world, you know that feeling well, don't you? You have received the kingdom of God in your heart. Jesus Christ rules and reigns in your heart. You have enthroned him in your heart. And the immediate thing that starts to happen in the heart of one who has enthroned Christ in their heart is you begin longing for the return of your king. You begin longing for his presence. You begin longing for his kingdom because you are living as an ambassador. You are in a kingdom of this world representing a kingdom that you are not in, representing a kingdom that you live for, but that is not your present state. And you long for that kingdom for the initiation of that physical kingdom, which the prophets of both Old Testament and New Testament have proclaimed is indeed coming. And Jesus' statement to the Pharisees in verses 20 and 21 in no way implies that a physical kingdom is not coming. And we see that in those subsequent verses. Jesus is very much promising a kingdom that is observable, a kingdom that will come upon this earth. But he wasn't about to give that answer to the Pharisees. First, because it would have put the cart before the horse, elevating the coming kingdom on earth while obscuring the necessary first step to become a part of that kingdom, namely belief. You must be born again. To elevate the kingdom part before the repentance part is to put the cart before the horse and it is to obscure his message. Jesus wasn't going to do that before the Pharisees. Second, it would have confirmed to the Pharisees their misunderstanding and rejection of that call to repentance. It would have confirmed to them, I don't need to repent, I'm ready for that kingdom. Why hasn't it come yet? Jesus says, because you haven't positioned yourself to receive it. Because he can't bring it until there's repentance. 
There was no reason for Jesus to talk about the coming earthly kingdom to the Pharisees as long as they were unwilling to receive the spiritual truths of repentance and enthrone him in their hearts. In much the same way that there's no reason for me to get into a discussion with an unbeliever about the doctrine of Christian sanctification. I can spend a whole heap of time talking to an unbeliever about what the Bible says about all sorts of theological issues, but it's not going to matter because the Holy Spirit of God has not illuminated their hearts. They cannot understand spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned and they are not spiritual because they do not have the spirit of God. So what do I do with the unbeliever? I stay on the gospel. I bring everything back to the gospel. If they want to know a question about some contradiction in the Bible or supposed contradiction in the Bible, I explain to them why it's not a contradiction and then I bring it back to the gospel because that's the only thing that is really going to matter until they accept that gospel. Then the Spirit of God is indwelling them. Then we can talk about all the other stuff that needs the Spirit of God's illumination to understand as it relates to the spiritual things of the Word of God. Now, the same could not be said about the disciples, however, could it? These men had submitted themselves to the truths of God's Word. We would not believe that they had the indwelling Holy Spirit yet, but they were... They were in a place where when the comforter, uh, when, when Jesus would leave, he would send the comforter and so they would receive the Holy Spirit with power. And so Jesus speaks to them and as he does so, he anticipates first his departure, telling them that there would be hard days ahead, days when they would long to see the kingdom, but it would not yet be present and that there would be false Christs that would abound in those days, saying, lo here, lo there. Jesus said to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. It doesn't come with low here, low there. It's within you. But then to his disciples, he said, the kingdom of God is coming and people will say in those days when I'm absent and you're awaiting my return, low here, low there. Look for Christ here. Look for Christ there. Christ is in this movement. Christ is in this, this, this uh, 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 religious system. Christ is in this idea, this ideology. And Jesus says, don't follow them. Don't go after them. They're exhorted not to believe those false Christs because unlike the kingdom of God that Jesus brought through submission and belief, which would be without observation, which would be within them, the kingdom of God that Jesus would bring upon his return would come with unmistakable observation. It will be, un when Jesus returns, you're gonna know it, I'm gonna know it. It will be unmistakable. He says, as lightning strikes, in the sky, and it comes instantaneously, and it comes dramatically, and it strikes in a singular part of the heavens, but even though it only strikes, you've seen this before, right? One single bolt of lightning, it strikes in a single part of the heavens, but it lights everything. Everything is touched by the light of that bolt of lightning. Immediate strike, I can see the whole world, right? Everything is lit up. Jesus says that's the coming of the Son of Man. It will most certainly come with observation, when he comes on this earth. In the day of his return, he will light the world. It will be dramatic, unmistakable, and definitive. But notice that the statement of timing that the kingdom is not yet, that the kingdom is still future, is still very much what he's saying here. It's a, it's a future thing. The kingdom of heaven is within you. That's today. The kingdom of heaven that's coming, that's, that's coming. On the day that Jesus spoke, he called men to prepare for that kingdom by receiving the kingdom of God within them. To prepare for the kingdom defined by absolute observation by receiving the kingdom that comes without observation. 
Because some things must happen before the observable kingdom will come, don't they? First, Jesus said he must suffer many things. Be rejected of this generation of men. Jesus speaking there of the cross. Second, as we read in verse 22, then the disciples must be without their Savior for a time, without their King for a time, where they desire to see the days of the Son of Man, but they do not get to see the days of the Son of Man. The kingdom of God reigns in their hearts. They live according to those kingdom principles. They align themselves with the, 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 the teachings of their King, but they neither have their King's physical presence, nor do they yet rest in a physical kingdom. Third, then, as we read in verse 23, there must be a strong push toward apostasy defined by false Christ. This is a timetable, right? The king goes away. After the king goes away, there will be great sorrow, persecution, and difficulty. After this great sorrow, persecution, and difficulty, there is a push toward apostasy. There are false Christs that abound. Paul warns in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that in the last days, we would see uh, the last days defined by such things, by men who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, for evil men and seducers to wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And maybe even more specifically, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And if Jesus' warnings in the Gospels are any indication, much of this deceit, many of these seducing spirits and doctrines of devils will come as false Christs, will come in the name of religion, in the name of Christianity, in the name of the, 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 the God of the Bible, but they will not actually be of the God of the Bible. Now, false Christs have always abounded among men. Be it the elevation of another man to save your status, such as false religious leaders, Muhammad and Islam, Dalai Lama, Buddha, or cult leaders of different religious sects, or even as many have done with politicians today, elevating political leaders to messianic, Christ-like status. So we've, we've always seen false Christ, people saying, lo, he's there, lo, he's here. We've seen it as well in perversions of the true Christ, such as the Catholic Eucharist, where they claim that Jesus is in the elements themselves, in the, in the bread, in the wine. It's false Christ, such as the Christian nationalist Christ which, like in the days of the Pharisees, is a Christ formed in the image of man who, becomes, who comes to bring political and social deliverance rather than to bring humility and repentance. That is a false Christ. Men who see fighting the culture war as fighting for their Messiah because the culture war is their Messiah. And Jesus warns his followers to reject all such false claims. Claims which will become all the more fervent, all the more numerous as we get nearer and nearer to his kingdom coming. And in order to help his disciples understand, coming back to Luke 17, in order to help his disciples understand the nature of those days, Jesus gives several historical examples of the same spiritual condition that will define those last days. And he begins with Noah. Now, it's been a little while since we talked about Noah, but we did teach through Noah. And Jesus says this in verses 26 and 27 of Luke 17. 
And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus then gives a second parallel picture in verses 28 to 30. And this is where we, we catch up with where we're studying in Genesis 19. Jesus says, likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the days when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus describes the spiritual tone and condition of the culture in the days of Noah and of Lot. The condition was one of apathy, one of distraction. Though Noah had been a preacher of righteousness, presumably for 120 years, though Lot was a man whose righteous soul was vexed in Sodom, who sat in the gate of the city and told those of the city that they did much wickedness, these people were numb to all such warnings. They were so comfortable. They were busy doing what they were doing. They were happily living their lives and they were not interested in the things of God. They were not interested in the warnings. They were not interested in the judgments. They were not interested in the fact that what they were doing was wicked. They had no care over that. They ate, they drank, they married, they lived without care, without any consideration of their perilous state, without any posture of repentance or submission to God. They did what they wanted. Their God was their belly. Violence abounded, wickedness abounded until the day that that lightning flashed. And it was unmistakable. Noah and his family passed through the door, which is Christ, into the ark of salvation. And God closed that door and the rain began to fall. And the people said, oh no, Noah was right. The judgment has come. It's too late. Lot is pulled out of the city. He and his wife and his daughters flee. And the fire and the brimstone fall. And his sons-in-law say, wait a minute, my father-in-law was right. But it's too late. And it destroyed them all. And because their hearts were not already postured to submission and to repentance, because they had not already received the message of salvation into their hearts, because God was not in all their thoughts, because they had not humbled themselves in the days where judgment was being warned about and being preached, on the day when judgment came, it came for them, and they were destroyed. Do you see the teaching, Christian? Jesus says in verse 30, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This is the kingdom that comes with observation. This is the day when the Son of Man is revealed again after days where he departs, after days of persecution, after days of apostasy, after all the false Christs, after the people who say, lo here, lo there, then the Son of Man will come as lightning and he will light up the world. And on that day, it will be as these days, as the days of Noah, as the days of Lot. Jesus is not, was not denying before the Pharisees that there was yet any earthly physical kingdom coming. That was simply not a message that was relevant to the Pharisees of, at that time. Until they received the kingdom of God within them, the kingdom of God on this earth was nothing to them but judgment. So Jesus was not going to focus on when the kingdom was coming, except that it was coming. Instead, he needed to focus with them on whether or not they will repent, because that is what aligns us to be ready 
for that kingdom to come. Because on the day when that physical kingdom comes, Christian, and the Son of Man is revealed, following his suffering, following his rejection, following his departure, just as in the days of Noah, just as in the days of Lot, there will be two different dispositions among people. First, those whose hearts have been humbled and positioned unto repentance, who have already accepted their king, who have already accepted his kingdom, though it has not yet been established by observation, though there, it, it has not come with observation, and no one has said low here, no one has said low there, yet we accept it because it is within us. And for these, the kingdom, when it comes on this earth, when the kingdom comes with observation and with power and with glory as lightning that strikes from the heavens, it will come with salvation and illuminate the world unto salvation for them. But there's a second group of people. Those whose hearts are not receptive. Those whose hearts have not been humbled. They're going about their business without any regard for the truths of God's word. Whether they're hardened, whether they're apathetic, whether they're lazy, or whether they are faking it. For these, the kingdom of God will come with said power as lightning but it will come to utterly consume them in judgment. And if the typology across these events is thorough, we, we, we know for certain that what Jesus is saying in this day is that the day when, when the Lord comes will be a day where everybody is just going about their business, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, all of that. We know, that. we know that's what Jesus is saying. If we extend the typology a little bit further, which... We may or may not, it may or may not be valid to do, but if we choose to extend it further, then we might expect that like in the days of Noah, the people will be in utter wickedness, utter apathy, utter com and complete disregard. And as well as in the days of Noah, we might expect that when the day the, Lord re the Lord's return begins, there will be very little faith left on the earth but that he will call his own out of the world before that judgment begins. In Noah's day, there were only eight persons left who got into that boat. In Lot's day, there were only four persons who fled from Sodom, only three of whom were not consumed in the judgment. And so we might imagine that when the Lord comes again, there will be very little faith left if we extend that typology beyond Jesus' exact words. And this is the warning that Jesus then falls into. A warning that's connected to the very final days of those last seven years that we call the tribulation. So verses 31 and 32, the Bible says this. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Now we have very little here by way of timing given for these events. We do see a general order of events, uh, but we don't have uh, much timing. And it is, again, beyond the scope of our time to dig too deeply into the various views of end times events. But let me give you a very brief synopsis of what we at Legacy Baptist Church believe the Bible says about the end times. At Legacy Baptist Church, we are a premillennial pre-tribulational church. We believe that the Lord will take his church out of the world prior to the seven final years of tribulation. We believe that the Lord will return and set up his kingdom and it will be a literal 1,000 year reign. And that will be, of course, he will return prior to the millennial kingdom then. 
And the reasons why are many. I'll give you a brief synopsis of what we believe on this. The Bible tells us in Daniel 9 that the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, or in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ and Daniel 9, excuse me, that the final days upon the earth will be defined by a unique seven-year span. We read about this in Daniel 9, beginning in verse 24, where the Bible says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Notice that the angel tells Daniel that this final 70 weeks, now when we compare Daniel to Revelation and we compare the timetables, what we understand is that there's this seven final the, the, the 70 weeks is broken up into um, 69 weeks, or technically seven weeks, 63, or 62 weeks, and then a final uh, week. That final week bears much resemblance to what we find in the book of the Revelation as it relates to a final seven-year span. And as we compare those, the 1,260 days on one end and the 1,260 days on the other end of, this, of these events that happen in the book of the Revelation, when we put them together, we recognize that those 70 weeks of Daniel, particularly that final week of Daniel, is actually not representing seven days, but seven years. Now, that is entirely consistent with the scriptures. The Hebrew word there is not, uh, for week, is, very, is almost almost always used to speak of a week as in a seven-day week. However, it is more actually 70 sets of seven is the, the Hebrew idea there. So it's entirely possible that it's, it's years as much as it is weeks. And when we connect this to Revelation, in Daniel, the Bible said that Daniel was to seal up the vision, uh, to not seal up the vision and the prophecy uh, because in the, or he was, excuse me, he was said to seal up the vision and the prophecy. John was said in the book of the Revelation not to seal up the vision and the prophecy Revelation is the key that unlocks Daniel. So we get Revelation. Now we understand what's happening in Daniel. The 70 weeks, we believe, are 490 years of time. And the Bible says that this 490 years are determined upon the people of Daniel. Who are the people of Daniel? Israel. And upon the holy city of Daniel, which is the holy city of Daniel. That's Jerusalem. So these 490 years are a prophetic timeline of God's dealings with the people of Israel and with the nation or the, the city of Jerusalem. So this is a very Israel-centric prophetic statement. This is not talking about anything else. This is talking about God's dealings with the nation of Israel over 490 years of history. And he gives various checkpoints within that, the, the scope of that 490 years. Now, these 490 years as a prophetic timeline of God's dealings with Israel, his covenant people Israel, do not speak to the church. And the 2,000 years that God has been working in the church to this point, which Paul called a mystery, are not in view here. Now, the seven years which we call the end times are part of this broader 490 years of history that are focused upon God's dealings with the nation of Israel. And that was in order to accomplish six particular purposes. Take very careful note of these from Daniel 9.24. The purposes for which God says these prophecies were given of Daniel's people, Israel, and Daniel's city, Jerusalem, are these. To finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, in other words, to, to finish the, the, the prophecies, and to anoint the most holy. And notice how it is that the angel then traces this 70 set of seven. 
verses 25 to 27. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. A score is 20, three score is 60, that's 60 and two, that's 62 weeks. So seven weeks, 62 weeks, that's 69 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks, that's that 62 weeks, after the seven weeks, so this is after the whole 69 weeks, shall Messiah be cut off. Messiah will be killed, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abomination, she shall make it desolate, even unto the, con the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So Daniel records a description of these 490 years, broken into a period of seven weeks or 49 years, then into a period of 62 weeks or another 434 years. And the angel said that this 483 years would comprise the time between when the temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt, it's around 445 BC, the command to rebuild Jerusalem, not the command for Israel to go back, but the command for the, the, the temple to actually be, or the city, excuse me, to be rebuilt. Uh, and when Messiah the Prince would come. That may refer to the birth of Jesus. That may refer to the baptism of Jesus. That may refer to the transfiguration of Jesus. When was it that God considered the Messiah to have come? We don't exactly know that, but we know who the Messiah is, and we know the general 33 years or so in which he may have, in, in which he came, and, and where along that, that 33 years, where within the scope of that is, is, is he biblically said to have come? Maybe it's at his baptism, maybe it's at his birth, maybe it's at his transfiguration. One way or another, we know he came. And within that, the Bible says there are those 483 years, those 69 sets of seven, those 69 weeks. Now, after this, the Bible says that Messiah would be cut off. He would be killed and not for himself. This happened somewhere around 30 AD. And then following his death, the sanctuary would be destroyed. There's no particular timetable given for this, but we know that that happened in 70 AD. When Rome, the people of the prince that shall come, the prince that shall come being the one who we call the abomination of desolation, the man of sin, the son of perdition, who we connect to the first John speaking of the Antichrist. Antichrist is not actually a label given to that man directly. It is what we connect because John says that there is an Antichrist who's coming. And even so, there are many Antichrists, those who come in the spirit of Antichrist. But he is called the man of sin. He is called the son of perdition. He is called the abomination of desolation. And that man will come from that people, which is why we understand that he will come from a Roman Empire sort of uh, heritage. And all of this we can point to in history, right? We can point to the command to rebuild the temple, or excuse me, the city. We can point to Messiah coming. We can point to Messiah being cut off. We can point to the, the, the people of the prince that shall come destroying the temple. That's all history. But then we cannot yet point to the next seven years, the next, that final week. We could point to it if we were talking about Antiochus Epiphany in 168 B.C., then we could say, yeah, yeah, that's the abomination of desolation. We've seen that before, although some of the other things didn't make sense. But we can't point to it 
after Messiah's coming yet. This is not yet there within the scope of history. The prince of the people who destroyed the temple would make a covenant with Israel for, final, for those final seven years. We didn't see that. And in the middle of that seven years, he would desecrate the temple with the abomination of desolation. We haven't seen that. Which Daniel calls the overspreading of abominations for which, it shall, for which he shall make it desolate. And this is why we believe that there's a time gap between the first 483 years and the final seven years. And this time cap is consistent with how biblical prophecy works. There are several times in the Bible where we see such things, where the prophet, it's as if he was standing on a mountain and God was showing him epochs of history. And he was showing him the various things that would happen at various points in history. And as Daniel is looking, he sees these 483 years. He sees seven years. And then he sees, uh, um, excuse me, seven weeks. And then he sees the 62 weeks. And then he sees one more week. And he sees these weak checkpoints. But what he doesn't see is if there's anything between them. It's as if each of those checkpoints is an epoch that is on a hill. And he can't see the valley that's between those hills. He does not know how big that valley is. He does not know what happens within that valley. All he sees are the epochs of history that God has seen fit to see to show him. And why is, why is that all he's seeing? Because that's all this prophecy is about. It's not about the Gentile world. It's not about what God would do in the Gentile world. It's about what God will do in, with Daniel's people and Daniel's city. With Israel and Jerusalem. So we have 483 years that happened contiguously as best we can tell. We don't exactly know what it is between the first seven weeks, that 49 years, and then the next 62 weeks. We don't know why those are broken up directly in history. There's a few theories. But we certainly know that everything has happened to this point that, that was prophesied. But we haven't seen that last week yet. And to this point, there's been about 2,000 years between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. And that's that valley that Daniel did not see because God saw fit not to tell him. That's why Paul calls the church in the New Testament a mystery. Because it's not anticipated directly in Old Testament prophecy. God did not reveal to the prophets of Israel this gap, this time period. And yet that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So that if you think of a prophet looking on this mountain range, he can only see the things that God has seen fit to reveal, not the valleys in between. And again, if you want more information on this, I actually preached a two-part message on interpreting prophecy at the beginning of my Revelation series. Right? There were eight messages at the beginning of that. And there's a two-part series on interpreting prophecy. And of course, that's built on all the other interpretive stuff. So you'll probably want to start at the beginning of that, uh, of that whole eight-part series. And you can go back and listen to those. But what we understand then as we look at Daniel's 70 weeks historically is that after the first 483 years of history, the history of Israel that was literally fulfilled, literally fulfilled, up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the final seven years of this prophecy have not yet been literally fulfilled. Now, there are many people who have said, oh no, they've been fulfilled but they've been fulfilled allegorically, metaphorically. Well, here's the problem with that. The first 483 were filled literal, fulfilled literally. And now you're going to allegorize the last seven or the last week, the last seven years. Why would God do that? Why would God fulfill the first 483 years literally and then switch to allegory or metaphor for the last seven? 
that would not be consistent. If I'm writing a letter and I'm telling someone about 490 years and I'm, I'm just writing about the first 483 and they're all, everything's literal. And then I jump to allegory for the last seven. That is incoherent. That is not how you communicate properly. God had his word written to be communicated, to be understood. If the first 483 years were literal, why are we not allowing the last seven to be literal? It doesn't make any sense to me. To this end, we believe them to be yet future. And because the 483 years were fulfilled in history literally, we have confidence that the final seven will be fulfilled in history literally as well. Rejecting the idea that the 70th week is somehow metaphorical or allegorical when the other 69 most certainly were not. And this is where we come back to Luke, but we do, and we do so through Matthew 24. So in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 18, I told you to put your thinking caps on this morning. Verses 15 through 18 of Matthew 24, we read this. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. See, because Israel thought they'd already seen the abomination of desolation. They thought that it happened, I said 168, I think it may have been 164, 160s BC. That had happened in the 160s BC when Antiochus Epiphanes, who was uh, the, the king of Syria, came into Jerusalem, into the temple, and sacrificed a pig on the altar, leading to the Maccabean War, leading to the cleansing of the temple, which is why they celebrate Hanukkah today. They celebrate Hanukkah in remembrance of the cleansing of the temple in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, when the abomination of desolation took place, and then they were able to come back out of that abomination of desolation. But notice Jesus here in Matthew 24, 200 years after that event, says, future tense, when ye see in the future the abomination of desolation. And this is why he says there, whoso readeth, let him understand. The Jews said, wait a minute, Jesus. We've already seen the abomination of desolation. And this is another prophetic idea called dual fulfillment, where there is a short-term fulfillment that is a type that shows a glimmer of the full fulfillment to come. And by the way, the same thing has happened as it relates to end times events. That in 70 AD and the subsequent years, there was a smaller, not complete fulfillment of some of the end times ideas. But it wasn't complete. It wasn't full and it wasn't literal. And so we still wait for that. Same thing that Jesus is doing here between Antiochus Epiphanes and the man of sin that is to come. Verse 16, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. So in Matthew 24, Jesus gives the warning to flee, very similar to what we read in Luke 17, to take nothing with them, to not turn back for anything, directly in the context of seeing the abomination of desolation. And that's why I brought you here. Luke doesn't give us that timetable. Matthew does. Matthew says, this is happening at the time where you see the abomination of desolation. And again, if we compare this to Daniel chapter 9, then D Daniel 9 says that that will happen at the midpoint of the 70th week. Now back to Luke 17. In Luke 17, Jesus uses very similar language to describe the day of his coming to establish his kingdom. The, the day when such things appear, not to take anything back, well, excuse me, not to take anything, not to turn back, but to flee from the judgment of that day. 
Now, I am making an inference when I say that I'm, when I'm connecting Matthew 24 to Luke 17. If you've been in the Mark series, you remember that Jesus doesn't necessarily, that every time Jesus uses an illusion or a parable, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same time he's talking or it's the same context. It is possible that what Jesus is saying here in Luke 17 is slightly different. He's using the same exhortations, the same uh, um, desire, but it is a different time than Matthew 24. It's possible. But whether he's speaking of the same time or a different time, using the same illustration, we don't rightly know except to say this. And again, I simply don't have time to prove all of this today. But it is not inconsistent to see the coming of the kingdom of God at, uh, in the end times as both a singular event and also to see it as a series of events. Say, well, pastor, within your, your, your interpretive method, you say that the, 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 the coming of the Son of Man begins with this rapture seven years before Jesus' feet touched the Mount of Olives. How is that? Uh, but, but then you, the, you say that, that, that Christ is coming for his people at his second coming. How is it possible? How is the, the, the second coming two events? Is it two events? Is it three events? Is it five events? Uh, how is that possible? Well, well, I mean, it's not really that hard to explain, is it? Uh, uh, to think about. In the same way we have a church picnic every year. And that's a single event, right? We have a church picnic where we sit down and we enjoy a meal together. But it's also a series of events, isn't it? At our church picnic, we begin with singing, and then I preach, and then we eat, and then we go pull our hamstrings playing ultimate frisbee. All of those things happened. And whether I'm on the ultimate frisbee field limping around on my bad hammy, or whether I'm filling my gullet full of delicious food, I'm at the church picnic. Now, if I'm eating, I'm more formally at the picnic. If I'm playing ultimate frisbee, I'm not really picnicking anymore. I'm abusing my body. But one way or another, when I leave, I said that was a fun picnic. It was a singular event filled with many different individual events, all as a part of a singular set. Uh, a singular label, singular event. All of that's the picnic. To this end, it would not be inconsistent for Jesus to connect his return to an event at the midway part of those seven years and at the beginning and at the end. That is the second coming of our Lord. The 70th week is the second coming of our Lord. Then there's the second coming proper when his feet touch the Mount of Olives at the end of those seven years, at the end of that week, but that's, that, that's not inconsistent. We, we, we can easily wrap our mind around how we could understand that, even in modern vernacular. It would not be inconsistent then for Jesus to connect his return to an event at the midway part and so call men to flee any more than it would be inconsistent for us to connect his return to the beginning of those seven years and so for us to believe in a pre-tribulational rapture even though Jesus' return proper is neither at the beginning nor at the end or at the midpoint of that seven years, but rather at the end of those seven years. Okay, so that's a bit off topic. There's so much more that could be said there, but won't be, but that isn't the point. The point is verse 32, where Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 33, 
Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. And this is where I'd like to connect Jesus' warning about his imminent return to the nature of how we live our lives today. We do, in fact, believe that Jesus' second coming will be initiated by the catching away of his church out of this earth. We believe this because, as we considered in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 already, those last seven years of Daniel's prophecy rest outside of that which is, current, is currently, oh, outside of that which Christ is currently doing in his church. It represents a reinitiation of his work in Israel. Israel's people, or Daniel's people, Daniel's city. The 70th week, any more than the first 69 weeks, are not about the church. They are about Israel. They have nothing to do with us. Furthermore, remember those six purposes that we talked about in Daniel 9.24? Those six purposes for those 70 weeks? Those purposes don't apply to us. We are redeemed from our sin. We are already under the blood of Christ, meaning we have no part in God judging iniquity, finishing iniquity. The holy people of Israel are not our people. The holy city of Jerusalem is not our holy city. We have no part in that. If God is going to reinitiate his work both in and through Israel, and if we need not be judged with the world, so if we're not a part of God's reinitiated work because we're not Israel, if we do not need to be redeemed from our iniquity because we've already been that, if we do not need to be judged for our iniquity because Jesus was judged for it and we're under his blood, then we have no part in what's happening on that day. Say, well, pastor, who's going to tell the world? 144,000 sealed Jews are going to tell the world. Two witnesses are going to tell the world. And an angel is going to fly through the everlasting heavens preaching the everlasting gospel, or the heavens preaching the everlasting gospel. They're going to tell the world. This is our time to tell the world, Christian. And that's what we ought to be busy doing. So if God is going to reinitiate his work both in and through Israel, and if we need not be judged with the world, then we actually have no purpose as a church in those seven years. The church does not functionally have a purpose within that prophetic context. We furthermore believe that when Jesus says his coming would be like lightning, unexpected and unannounced, a disposition which is difficult to attribute to any point within those seven years of Revel uh, as Revelation describes them, it's much more likely to be the beginning of that seven years at the beginning of Christ's second coming within the reckoning of the church. But get this, this is, this, is, this is good stuff. While the second coming of Christ is like lightning, if we were to be gathered at the beginning of those seven years, right? Unexpected, but with observation. The second coming of Christ would also be like lightning to the Jew at the three and a half year mark of the abomination of desolation. In other words, if we are caught out of the world as a church at the very beginning of, the, uh, of, of those seven years, that would be when the church does not expect anything because we, we believe that the, of the, uh, in those seven years, right? And if you start seeing everything that Revelation says is coming in those seven years, you say, we're in that. We're, we're there. No imminent return. But if we're caught out at the beginning, then it's like lightning for us. But you know who it's not actually evident to yet that Jesus is returning? Jew or unbeliever. Because they don't believe the scriptures. But then at the three and a half year mark, when the abomination of desolation happens, do you know what it's going to be like? Lightning to the Jew. Jesus is coming. Messiah is coming. This is the abomination of desolation Jesus spoke of. Jesus is our Messiah. 
That would be like a moment of the kingdom of God coming to the Jew. But the unbeliever still wouldn't believe it. He wouldn't care. And what will be the lightning moment for the unbeliever? When those clouds part and when his feet touch the Mount of Olives. And then it's like lightning. The kingdom of God has come to the unbeliever. So that in the pre-tribulational idea, the church and the Jew and the Gentile or unbeliever all can experience the imminent return, all can experience a sudden lightning-like realization of the kingdom of God coming, even though there are three separate events that initiate them. It's just my theory. So for the Christian, the divine marker will be the com- of the kingdom, coming kingdom of God will be like Lot in his day when God catches us out of this world before the great judgment begins. For the Jew, the divine marker of the coming of the kingdom of God will be like Lot in his day, the fleeing from Jerusalem when they see the abomination of desolation, like lightning. And for the unbeliever, the divine marker of the coming kingdom of God, like Sodom in its day, will be when they see the coming of the Son of Man and his feet touch the Mount of Olives and he destroys them with the word of his mouth. And it is for these reasons, among some others, that we believe the Lord will rapture his church prior to those seven years beginning. Again, we... we, uh, Many very good theologians and good people disagree on that, and that's fine. But what this also means is that regardless of who, whoever is under the sound of my voice, regardless of who you are, be that the professing believer or the unbeliever or the Orthodox Jew, we are all exhorted to remember Lot's wife, to hold this world loosely. We are all exhorted not to invest our hearts so heavily in the things of this life, that on the day when God would seek to call us out of this wicked world, we turn back in longing for the things of this earth, and then we are consumed in said judgment. That's the point, Christian. Don't let all of the theological stuff and all the technical stuff that we talked about divert you. Perhaps it was, perhaps, perhaps I shouldn't have said it if I didn't want it to divert you, but, but try to bring your mind back here to this idea. Now, this is not a warning about losing your salvation at the last The idea of losing your salvation is one that is utterly foreign to the pages of Scripture. Every picture of salvation is reflective of its permanence. The picture of being married to Christ, Christ and his church, and the reason why God hates divorce. Be it the picture of being born again, where there is no such thing as becoming unborn. One can die, but one cannot become unborn. Be it the picture of being sealed with the Spirit of God until the day of redemption. If I am sealed until the day of redemption and I do not make it to the day of redemption, I was never sealed to the day of redemption because I didn't make it to the day of redemption, right? But if the Bible says I am sealed unto the day of redemption, then that seal is there unto the day of redemption. If I become unsealed, then either God's a liar or I was not sealed ever. So Jesus promised that no man can pluck us out of his father's hand. This is not warning us. Lot's wife is not a picture of losing your salvation. We do not see this warning, in this warning, a statement regarding the danger of losing one's salvation, but rather the danger of being a man or a woman who is associated with salvation, who is associated with God and with God's people, but whose heart is not actually with him. Who is ready to, who, who is looking for the kingdom of God, it's the Pharisee, right? 
It's the person who's asking, when is the kingdom of God coming, but the kingdom of God is not within them? And Jesus says, you don't want to be asking that question, and you don't want to be excited about that day, because that day is not a day of excitement for you. And even if Jesus were to, on that day, bring the kingdom, they would run out of that judgment with the rest of Israel, but every single one of those Pharisees would have turned back, because their heart was not with God. Like Lot's wife, who was called out of the city by virtue of her association with her righteous husband, but who, in the day of judgment, was caught up in that judgment because her heart was rooted in the things of the world that she left behind. It was not rooted in the promises that were ahead. She didn't want to be judged. Few people do. But she also didn't want to give up her love for those things for which they were being judged. And God forbid we would do the same, Christian. God forbid we would be so invested in the things of this world, which is a judged world. This world is judged. It is already judged. It's a condemned world. God forbid that we would be so invested in the things of this condemned world that it would strip from us our love for the world that is to come, that it would cause our hearts to be drawn or gravitating toward the things of this life, the things of this world, rather than the things of the world to come, that it would draw us toward those things which will surely be destroyed, which will surely burn in the fires of everlasting judgment. And so we are called at the last to search our own hearts on this day and know whether or not we can say with confidence that we are not seeking to save our lives. And by that, you, I don't mean your eternity. By life there, Jesus means the life that you have built. The things that you can see and taste and touch and feel. Let us be certain that we are not so busy saving our life that on the day of judgment we lose it. And rather that we lose our life. We yield it. We hold this world loosely so that on the day of judgment, we preserve that thing that matters the most, which is our soul. And this doesn't mean that we must reject all use, the use of all earthly things. We don't all have to sell everything that we have and go live in you know, some cave somewhere. It's not about whether or not you have things. It's about whether or not those things have you. It's okay to have things. What we don't want is, to ha is for things to have us. This doesn't mean that we must come out of the world, for if we come out of the world, we cannot reach the world. But can we live in the world without being of the world, Christian? Can we use this world without abusing this world, Christian? Where does your heart truly rest today? Are you a lot? Are you living in this world of sin and of evil and it vexing your righteous soul? Are you a Noah, a man righteous in his generation of wickedness and of evil? Or are you Lot's wife? You're associated with the things of God. You're here, aren't you? You're associated with the things of God. You know the words to say. You know how to look. You know how to act. But when that judgment falls, you will be caught up in it because you have loved this present world. Because you have sought to save your life, meaning the things that you have loved in this life. Because you have loved your life above the things of the life to come. And if so, would you make today the day where you release that affection 
and commit yourself to the kingdom which is to come. And of course, this exhortation falls upon two sets of ears. The first and most plainly are the ears of those who have never accepted Jesus Christ as their savior. You're trusting in your own righteousness to earn you merit with God. You are denying your sin nature, insistent that you are in fact good enough for God. You talk the talk, you look the part, you're clean on the outside, but inside you're dead. You're filthy, you're living a lie. Would you today come to Jesus Christ? Remember Lot's wife. Lot was, Lot's wife was a woman who was associated with righteous things, but she herself left her heart in Sodom when she fled. And the Bible says we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, that there is nothing that I can do or you can do or say or buy or earn to make myself right with God, but that Jesus Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves when he died on the cross for our sins. And on that day, the Bible says, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Going to church is not gonna get you to heaven. Getting baptized is not gonna get you to heaven. The only thing that can get one to heaven is to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to humble ourselves and to acknowledge our sin, to acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves, but that Jesus' work on the cross to purchase our forgiveness is sufficient for our forgiveness. But he didn't stay dead, did he? The Bible says that three days after his death, he rose again, proving that everything he said was true, that, if he, that when he said he could give me eternal life, if he's still dead in, the, in a grave somewhere, he cannot give me anything. But if he's alive, he can give me everything he promised. He can give me of his spirit, so that I might live in this world unto his glory and he can give me life eternal because he has it and he has the authority. He had the authority to lay down his life and he had the authority to take it up again. He has the authority to give it to me. And if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, would you do that today? Second, there's a second group that can benefit from this message also. You're a believer. You are not Lot's wife in that sense. You will not be caught up in that judgment, but you're more like Lot in his day. Your proximity to wickedness has just come a little too close to that judged world. You know, it's an interesting thing. In Noah's day, God said to Noah, get in the boat, and he'd built the boat, and he got in the boat, and the Lord closed the door to the boat. It's not quite how it went down with Lot, was it? Angels say, leave, He's doing something, but he's not leaving. He's fiddling around. The angels have to grab his hand and the hand of his wife and the hand of his daughters and yank them out of that city. And maybe that's you today. You've just gotten a little bit too close in proximity to the wicked world that's around you. You're gonna be lifted out of this world on that day because Christ is in you. But you're living utterly compromised in the world as it exists today. You yet live for yourself. God is not in all your thoughts. You've given him some. You consider it enough, but you've not given all. And to you will come the results of Lot. Lot was a man who was spared the destruction of brimstone and fire, but whose subsequent life, as we thought a little bit about last week, and we'll explore a lot more next week, his subsequent life was defined by much loss. He ended up in a place of fear. He ended up in a place where he became the father of two of Israel's great enemies, the Midians and the Ammonites. Ammonites, 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 I believe. Yeah, Ammon and Moab, right? 
He became the father of those two great enemies of Israel. Not a great legacy that was left behind after being yanked out of that judgment. And Christian, when you're pulled out of this world and when you give an account of your works on this life, those will not be determinative of your eternal salvation. That, that's settled at, at the cross. That's settled with Christ. But will you suffer loss on that day of judgment or will you have reward? For some here, your manner of living in this world will reflect great loss on that day of judgment. You will be saved, yet so as by fire. But you will suffer great loss. And may it not be so, Christian. Is Christ not worthy of our devotion? Is he who owns us by right of creation and by right of redemption not worthy of our obedience? Is the one who owns us twice worthy of us loving him back? May our lives be defined by that, Christian. May we look toward that day, and we look toward that day of judgment, and we look toward it as a day of deliverance, and it ought to be so. But may it also be a day of rejoicing, knowing that we have invested not in the, the kingdoms of this world, but that we have invested our life, our decisions, our obedience, our submission into the kingdom that is to come. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.